and welcome to the 2021 reboot of Informer Intelligence's podcast series. I'm Devinderpreet Mangat, an analyst at Data Monster Healthcare, and I'm taking over the podcast series from Mike Ramirez. On this week's podcast, we will be discussing COVID-19, current and future trends, as well as gene therapy strategies in haemophilia A and B. Joining me on the podcast this week are Michael Haydock, Senior Director of Therapy Area Analysis, and Script Senior Writer Andrew McConney, both of who have been covering the COVID-19 pandemic closely. So firstly, welcome, Michael. Hi, everyone. And welcome, Andrew. Hello there. Michael, would you like to kick us off with our discussion of COVID-19? Sure, I thought it would be interesting just to recap where we are uh, in terms of coverage rates and also potentially the goal that's been mentioned of herd immunity and actually how feasible that is. So if we just look at the the US as an example, uh, they've reached about 50% coverage of their total population with a first dose and about 40% for their second dose. So they've made very good progress, similar to the UK. We're a little bit higher, we're about 57% for our first dose and about 35% for for our second dose. Uh, we have a more spread out 12 week interval, which is why there's more of a lag there between the first and second doses. Um, but overall, the progress has been pretty good, but it's definitely slowing down, particularly in the US. We've seen the rate slow down. Um, and also on, on the negative side in terms of herd immunity, which has been touted as the goal, certainly towards the end of last year and early this year, I think the, there's more scepticism over the over how realistic that goal is now. Previously, the estimates required for herd immunity in terms of vaccination coverage were around 60%. That has edged up now with the latest estimates being around 80%. That's largely been driven by the emergence of new variants and the spread of the, of the UK Kent variant, for example, in the US. And effectively, the problem is as more transmissible variants emerge, the coverage rate that you need to have for your vaccines increases. Um, so I personally would have said, had you asked me at the end of last year if it was 60% feasible, I would probably have said yes uh, for the short term. Now that it's 80%, I think that's increasingly um, unlikely, to be honest. Um, I'd, I'm not sure that's a viable goal. There's there's a really interesting survey made by the Kaiser Family Foundation that suggests um, about 66% already vaccinated or or really wanting to be vaccinated but then you've got a, a hard line of people about 13 percent who will refuse to be vaccinated no matter what again about another seven percent so in total about 20 percent who have a very much won't be vaccinated unless i'm really pushed to you and then there's a good 12 percent or so who are kind of on the fence waiting to see how safety data emerge and that's just obviously with with adults as soon as you get into pediatric patients where Arguably, there's less clinical need for COVID vaccination. And even in the case of younger adults, you do see that willingness to become vaccinated dropping. So personally, I'm skeptical 80 percent is is even feasible. Um, I would also say in the longer term, what actually is our aim when it comes to herd immunity? Because there's all sorts of problems that can throw spanners in the work. The first one being uh, is immunity even long lasting? We, We don't know yet. We have good data from Pfizer's vaccine, for example. Um, that it will last at least six months protection is maintained. It was about 95% in their clinical trial. Their six-month data suggests it's about 90. So again, pretty good maintenance there, but we don't know how long that that will last and if we'll need to be vaccinating people every year, maybe every two years, who knows? And then obviously the, the thing that we always need to be looking over our shoulder for is the emergence of new variants. Uh, so far, we've been relatively lucky in that the new variants 
don't seem to be able to completely escape immunity but that might not always be the case there might be new variants that come up that are, are able to escape immunity or at least greatly impair vaccine effectiveness and you know so i'm personally quite skeptical that it's viable i guess you've also got things like global travel you know we're not going to be locked down forever you're going to have a lot more mixing between countries um, so i'm just personally skeptical that it's viable my own view is that i suspect we'll have to live with this as an endemic virus and have more targeted vaccination strategies going forward largely targeted at the elderly and those with comorbidities hey brilliant thanks for that michael um so I guess my first question is, what is the status of next generation vaccines and are they necessary? Yeah, so I've mentioned there, there are a few variants of concern uh, at the moment that are listed as variants of concern by the US. Uh, they have California and New York strains as well, but more globally, the main variants of concern are the uh, South African variant, uh, the Indian variant, much more recently in India and now also spreading in, in the UK in particular. And then there's a Brazilian, uh, there's actually three Brazilian variants um, that are obviously uh, more prevalent in Brazil. So they're the main ones that have shown in preclinical uh, studies. What they do is effectively take sera from people who've been vaccinated with the first generation vaccines and they look to see how effective the neutralizing antibodies are in that sera against these, these new variants. And in the preclinical in vitro studies, they've all shown. Uh, several fold drops in neutralizing antibodies hiatus, which in effect means that the neutralizing antibody uh, activity is less, that they're, they're not as able to neutralize these uh, viruses. And that's just because of mutations in their spike protein. Uh, so that's prompted uh, a lot of uh, concern. As I say, at this point, uh, the efficacy data are a bit mixed against these variants. Uh, all of the major manufacturers are aware of these variants and have already started developing next generation vaccines. We don't really have much clinical data um, in terms of clinical trials, particularly for Pfizer and Moderna, because the trials were conducted um, before uh, these variants obviously emerged. But we do have some promising data uh, for Pfizer's vaccine against the Indian variant here in the UK. So there was a study just released uh, a few days ago, actually. Uh, showing that Pfizer's vaccine was 88% effective against symptomatic infection from the Indian variant, which is really positive news because that's spreading here in the UK quite rapidly. I think it's now about 75% of all our new cases. So it's becoming the predominant strain in terms of new new cases. Um, and that's really positive because obviously it's much more transmissible, this Indian variant. And had it been able to evade immunity, then that would have thrown a serious spanner in the works of, of ongoing vaccination efforts. So I think they're probably, there's certainly a lot of interest in short people are developing them. As to whether they're actually needed, um, arguably not based on what we've seen with the Indian variant because the existing generation of vaccines, at least for Pfizer's vaccine, still seems to work. We don't know though if that's the case for all other vaccine approaches. So Pfizer's one's an mRNA-based vaccine. We don't know, for example, if the adenoviral vectors will be equally effective or if other modes of action are. So it's definitely really important to be developing these and testing, but it, the best case scenario, which seems to be the case, at least against the Indian variant, is that it might not actually be needed. Uh, similarly, for the South African one, for Pfizer's vaccine, again, there was a Qatari study um, where it showed 75% efficacy in a, a situation where the South African variant was heavily dominant. And again, that compares to 90% efficacy in its clinical trial. So it seems like there's some drop off there in efficacy, but not awful. 75% for you know more general vaccines would be perfectly acceptable. And importantly, against the more severe manifestations, which is ultimately what we care about most in terms of a public health standpoint. 
uh, it was 100% effective against Sevilla. So I'm not convinced they're actually needed at this point, but it's definitely de- worth uh, doing the research because we never know when new, new variants might come along or how other vaccines will perform. Yeah, actually, if I jump in at this point, actually, I think one interesting contrast you see between um, Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech in terms of this question for the variants is that um, Moderna's trying to get get a lead on this and it's it's got two or three different uh, approaches to it and it's what main one is sort of multivalent uh, vaccine so it's a, a vaccine that's targeting several um, strains at once so whereas in contrast to that Pfizer and BioNTech have just a bit betting as, as Michael was saying there that uh, the existing strain will, will work if you just use it as a booster um, so we'll see how that plays out but I think, again, what will be crucial about that is Pfizer in a good position already and it's got lots of doses. So that's what it's it's banking on in that respect. Thanks for that, Andrew. Right. With Pfizer and BioNTech uh, and Moderna in such a dominant position, how much demand or need is there for a second generation of co-vaccines from other companies? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think it's uh, I, I'm repeating a little bit what Michael's saying there and some, some of the subjects, but um, yeah, it's a good question. Pfizer and Moderna, with their mRNA vaccines, are, they are really in a very dominant position in, in, in the developed markets. Um, if you look at the US, there's 289 million doses administered so far, and but those two companies are you know, responsible for the lion's share of those. And in, even in the EU, you've got 161 million doses already given. And uh, AZ have played a big role in that, and Janssen to a smaller extent. But again, it, Pfizer and uh, Moderna are the, are the big players there, and that's translated into Pfizer taking a, a big lead. I mean, it's a bit, I mean, Comirnaty, as it's called, is uh, you know, really the biggest product launch ever, if you can if you can put it in, that, in, in any normal sense. But uh, so they've already made in the first quarter 3.5 billion dollars revenue, and they're on course for 26 billion dollars. Um, for the full year and that, that's probably pretty conservative to be honest there's there's more to come in terms of advanced uh, purchase agreements um and then moderna you know that's that's pretty close behind it's 18 billion so um also a spectacular success um but I mean, the thing to point out about all of that is of course it's not uh, the the biontech pfizer partnership isn't just the success of that isn't just based on the uh, the efficacy roles is results it's also the uh, manufacturing output um, and again, if you can you can contrast them with Moderna, they're both doing extremely well. The, the mRNA platforms are very similar in many respects, but uh, they're at the output for 2021 uh, is, is a big there's a big gap there. Pfizer and BioNTech are aiming to do three billion doses, and Moderna is at the very top end of their forecast for the moment, at least is is a billion doses. So that's that's you know a three to one ratio, and so that is behind what the the success of that partnership. Um, so then in, in that context, when you, you look at what's coming in the next generation vaccines, um, you know, how can they how can they fill in what what demand is, is left there? Um, you've got you've got two obvious ones, which are Novavax and CureVac, and they are really any day now. It could be you know n- next week that they produce their pivotal phase three readouts and um, the signs are good. For both of those, that they, they will be, you know, highly effective or efficacious in the trials. Um, and then a little bit behind them, we've got Sanofi and GSK, who've got their uh, protein subunit and uh, adjuvant ca- uh, candidate. 
And that's going to take probably until, well, they're looking at a Q4 approval um, at, at best. So that's going to be further behind. Um, so, I mean, in a nutshell, for the, for those three, um, I think it's pretty clear that, that the golden opportunity for them to play a, a really big role in in the uh, pandemic, that, that's gone. So, um, I mean, coming back to what Mike was talking about was variants and boosters and so forth, it's those companies, I think, are, are now pivoting to thinking, OK, how can we fit in in the booster market or producing variants, uh, variant targeting um, vaccines um, to fill in those gaps? I mean, there will be those gaps, but again, uh, they're going to have to be uh, pretty effective and quick on their feet to to fill in those gaps around Pfizer and Moderna. So I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of these kind of smaller companies that you spoke about, CureVac, Novavax, Moderna, do you not think there's certain partnerships or ways for them to kind of grow and still be relevant uh, as we move into the next generation of vaccine production? Partnerships? Yeah, I mean, CureVac have done that. They've got all sorts of, I mean, they did the, they've done the partnership with Bayer in the first part, and that was really on a manufacturing basis. I think that was, um, you know, a temporary arrangement. And uh, GSK is, has got a, a longer, they've taken a stake in them, quite a big stake. I forget quite how much it is now. But, um, and that's, that's a real point to forward. So, I mean, I think the, the point is that both these companies have, have uh, you know, have, have made it in the sense that in, in, in the next six months, they will pro- bring the product to market and they wouldn't have been in this position commercially if it wasn't for the pandemic. So that, you know, and they'll, they'll be recognised for that. Um, but they're not going to hit the same trajectory as, as Moderna or, or, or BioNTech in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's, and it's just how good those platforms can be. Um, the Cure, CureVac is, is trying to, trying to get into a next generation mRNA, but you know, the, the actual first proof of concept in its phase three trial isn't there yet. We'll see what that comes out with. So that's the thing to watch in the next fortnight, really, just how effective, uh, efficacious it can be in the, in the phase three trial. Um, but it's got a high bar to meet. So, um, you know, if it can come close to the other, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, then it'll be doing well, frankly. So moving a little bit further back into the pipeline, do you see any vaccine candidates that ultimately make a big impression? Yeah, it uh, it's it is. You do have to look a little bit further back, but um, I certainly I spoke to uh, Clive Dix recently, and he's the uh, he's just stepped down from being the the chair of the UK Vaccine Task Force, which of course has been quite successful in procuring and supporting a lot of these vaccines. And I asked him, well, what would you think if the uh, you know the next big leap forward? And he was quite unequivocal. He said um, oral vaccines, and uh, there's a few bubbling through now it's certainly in in the early stage um human trials so there's Vaxart and Altimmune um one, one of those is a nasal one of those is an oral and um the actual the promise of those is we've seen it in uh, in other other fields that you know oral vaccines are possible and the point being that you you generate a mucosal immunity which when, when you've got a respiratory virus that actually creates a, a barrier that we're not getting from the uh, intramuscular uh, vaccines. So they could be uh, the next, you know, real disruptive sort of uh, technology coming through. Um, but it, it's still early days. So it, I think we might see some more you know, proper um, proof of concept data from, from those players um, later this year. So uh, that's a possibility. 
Yeah, I'd jump in there on the Vaxart one in particular, because um, as you say, it's oral, it's, it's a different approach. I think, as you say, I think it largely hinges the success of that vaccine on how important the mucosal immunity is, because they did release, can't remember if it was phase one or phase two study earlier this year, I think it was, or possibly late last year. They released some data that was quite mixed, where they showed the IgG response, so if you like the serum neutralizing antibodies, was disappointingly low. But interestingly, as you say, they had a more mucosal response and then also a higher cellular response. Um, so we don't really know, I'd say at this point, what the correlates of protection are. Clearly, serum antibodies are very effective because we know that from monoclonal antibodies in, in the treatment setting, where they're able to lower viral load and prevent progression to severe disease. So we know serum neutralizing antibodies are really important, but we don't really understand yet what sort of role cellular immunity and mucosal immunity will play. So I agree, it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. Actually, since we're on the topic of technology, uh, I did wonder with um, a lot of the kind of AAV vaccines showing um, very low risks of blood clot, but risk of blood clot nonetheless, um, do you think these technologies will actually make it into next generation vaccines or will they kind of be left uh, on the side? The viral vector vaccines, you mean, AZ and so forth? Yep. Yeah, I mean, as from what the uh, AstraZeneca's uh, CEO, Pascal Sorio, is saying, is that they are, you know, proceeding with that um, and they've got certain commitments on that basis, I believe. But it, it has gone, you know, certainly on the UK side, it seems to go uh, on, you know, whether or not they procure further doses, it's gone quiet on that uh, side. So, you know, I think it, they've, said they've got a global commitment, they said, so they're going to keep forward with that. But um and there's, there's also some ideas about, uh, you know, can you fix that problem, that vaccine-induced problem? Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, when you've got such a strong mRNA base, it, it doesn't seem that there's, there's such a big need. Um, and trying to get to the bottom of that actual phenomenon is it needs to be established first, I think, before they want to proceed any further. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think if you look at, I think one of the problems is AstraZeneca is one of the major suppliers at the moment. I think they're manufacturing capacity is about three billion because they've partnered with the Serum Institute of India. So it's a real shame that it's that, that vaccine in particular is also one that's priced very low. It's only about three or four dollars. Um, so I think Andrew's right. They just need to investigate it a bit more, see if it's something that can be overcome. There was an interesting German study released yesterday, actually, uh, that theorised that one of the differences between the mRNA-based vaccines where we're not seeing these blood clots and the adenoviral vector vaccines might be something to do with the fact that the adenovirus is obviously encoding DNA that goes into the nucleus and is then being transcribed into mRNA, but that mRNA might be being spliced. And so what uh, the German uh, researchers were suggesting was that the spike protein is being spliced to make a soluble form, whereas normally it would be anchored into the membrane. Uh, and that soluble form might be, be being secreted into the blood and binding ACE2, which is the cellular receptor that it uses to enter cells on endothelial blood cells, and that might be triggering inflammatory reactions that ultimately cause blood clots. There's a few different uh, proposed mechanisms, but if that was the case, it would be interesting to see if they could engineer that, if you like, the coding of that DNA to try and eliminate those splicing sites and see if they can do it more safely. Um, but it will be interesting to watch. But as I say, it's just a shame it's happened with those vaccines. But I'd agree, certainly in the near term, it will still be used. Uh, particularly in the lower income markets where it's risk benefit for the more elderly people is still quite strong. Uh, in the EU and the UK, we've limited it to or UK. We're not 
using it in people aged under 40 and in the EU countries they've largely limited it to 55 or 60 years over so it still has a use where its benefit outweighs the risks but going forward if you can't solve that issue I, I agree mRNA based vaccines are looking just more promising why would you use something that has a safety issue if you don't have to Talking about some of these low income countries, um, I'm kind of wondering in terms of uh, emerging markets like China and India, who have massive amounts of people to vaccinate and obviously have been hit quite pretty hard by the pandemic. Uh, in terms of next generation vaccines for these countries, do you think uh, major manufacturers like Pfizer and AstraZeneca will still have a you know, strongish hold on these markets or will they kind of be opting for cheaper domestic vaccines? Yes, so they do have a good amount of domestic production. I mean, generally for vaccines, a lot of the world's vaccines are produced in India and and China um, by volume, at least in terms of sales, not that high, but by volume, yes. Uh, So in India, they have two Indian approved vaccines. One is actually the AstraZeneca vaccine that's made by the Serum Institute of India called Covishield that's being rolled out in India at the moment. And then they have one called Covaxin, which is an inactivated vaccine uh, being made by Biotech. Um, I think uh, they uh, India estimated a couple of days ago, I think it's about 2.16 billion doses at best they could have in 2021. So it's probably a bit optimistic because it did include some pipeline vaccines that we don't have data for yet. Uh, Biological E, for example, has, has one of its vaccines. I think Zydus has another one. So there are a few in pipeline. Um, so by the end of this year, I think they'll certainly be sorted in terms of their supply. But as you say, they've been caught off guard, I think, a bit in terms of how rapidly the Indian variant is is rising at the moment. So certainly near term, there's a shortage, but in the longer term, they'll be able to self-sustain. Uh, similarly for China, they have some domestic manufacturers. So Sinopharm, which is a state-owned pharma company, has a couple of vaccines approved for emergency approval. There's also Sinovac, uh, which has a vaccine called Coronavac, also inactivated. And then CanSino has an adenoviral vector, so similar technologies to AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, and that's single dose. But their manufacturing capacities for, for CanSino is, is particularly low. I can't remember, it's about 100 or 300 million, but not very high. I think for the uh, state-owned and uh, Coronavac collectively, I think they're about 3 billion, if I remember rightly off the top of my head they're aiming for for an annual run capacity so again they should be catered for um, and they shouldn't really have much need to import uh, other vaccines uh, they're looking there's been some mixed efficacy data for those inactivated vaccines so they're looking at alternative dosing schedules and boosters um, so we'll see how those play out but they should be catered for by the end of this year I think it's just the initial rush to try and increase manufacturing capacity as fast as possible. Yeah, I think I think it's worth pointing out the um, the partnership with, between BioNTech and uh, Chinese company Fosun, um, and for their for the you know co- what is known as community, but to probably be called something else in China, because um, that's on track um, to to you know for filing I think this year, and they're looking at producing a billion doses. Uh, I do think it's uh, it's still a, it's still an issue about trust of vaccines and domestic produ- uh, production in China. Uh, so, you know, something that's that's proven outside in the West, people are actually would be interested in, I think, in China. So that could be a really big uh, opportunity for BioNTech and Photon um, there. So, uh, again, that's another one to watch, I think, in the coming months, whether they get the the uh, approval down the line. In terms of making it easier for production, uh, one of the ideas has kind of been 
suggested by countries like India uh, is the idea of waiving patents. So as we kind of move forward into um, the World Trading Organization's 2021 meeting, uh, I'm just wondering how likely you think it is that major nations will agree to waiving patents. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that was it. Um, I've been reporting on it, um, you know, this sector for a long time, and I've seen lots of US presidents come and go and all sorts of, you know, Republicans or Democrats. And I, I, was, I was confidently predicting that it would never happen that a president would say, yes, let's, let's waive uh, patent rights, because that's obviously, you know, a, a very US uh, centric industry but you know joe biden did do that back on and back in beginning of may um and i mean in a nutshell i do think it's probably uh, ultimately a symbolic sort of gesture and it, it probably won't come to pass that that everybody will agree it does it does need the unanimous agreement I, I, I believe at the wto and there's many basically there's many other issues there i mean even if you introduce the um trade related aspects of intellectual property rights trips if if that's passed you still got all these other hurdles uh, uh michael did you any views on it no I, yes i i I'd agree i think my main skepticism with it is more whether it would impair manufacturing by the existing manufacturers because there's limited raw ingredients obviously to make these vaccines and then there's there's the lag required for technology transfer it's not as if you can just immediately produce these mrna based vaccines without building manufacturing capacities etc so i'm a bit more skeptical just in terms of the short-term feasibility of increasing supply in these countries and i think by the time obviously we don't know how the pipeline is going to pan out but by the second half of 2022 if much of these pipeline vaccines do succeed uh, that are looking quite promising at the moment then i think the supply constraints will be a lot uh, less important and so you know if it takes 12 to 18 months by the time we actually get all this technology set up we might not have the problem with regards to limited supply anyway so i'd take a bit more skeptical view on it yeah i mean the the point about the original proposal from south africa and india was it would relate to all intellectual property on on you know vaccines treatments diagnostics ventilators protective gear all that all the whole gamut of covid related you know supplies um, so that's not it isn't even a vaccine specific um, you know uh, thing on the table at the moment um, so yeah it, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to move forward at the right speed anyway uh, I mean the other thing is well some somehow it seems to have passed a lot of people by but just a week ago um, Pfizer BioNTech actually pledged two billion doses of um, for of their vaccine for lower middle income countries and previously it had it, the, its pledge for the COVAX facility was was really pretty low, pretty uh, you know um, some uh, small amount. So that's really shifted upwards now. So it's that would start to be the kind of volumes that are required. Um, and it really uh, you know actually going back to what you were saying, Michael, that they, they had uh, AZ have got a, a total with the Serum Institute um, a global uh, forecast of three billion doses. But I, I don't think they're going to hit that now because of their problems. So um, with Pfizer-BioNTech saying they're, they're, they're pledging two billion, I think that's probably more reliable, and so they actually probably will play a big role in those in those countries, um, because again, the mRNA manufacturing has proven actually more reliable than any any other. So I guess with um, Pfizer now shifting some of those vaccines over to the low and middle income countries, it's because they've obviously finished servicing some well, getting towards finishing servicing some of the major markets. Uh, I guess this also brings up the question of 
when it comes to next generation, will we still end up in this same kind of paradigm where the major markets will be getting the next generation vaccines first and then the lower middle incomes will be lagging behind? Or do you think it will be a more equal distribution because manufacturing will be higher? Yeah, I'd, I'd, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, af- I'm afraid not. It, it's clearly, I mean, the, the model has been set up very clearly. It's just as you say, they they have uh, prioritised those, those developed markets, and as soon as they've, uh, you know, filled up their order books and the manufacturing has looked stable, you know, then they've they've turned their attention to the other markets. I mean, I think that was probably always their plan. They d- didn't announce it that way. Uh, I'm talking about Pfizer in particular. I mean, that's where, unfortunately, AZ went wrong. They 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 made a promise, very ambitious and you know, great not-for-profit promise, but it they they haven't been able to meet it, and that's because of the manufacturing largely. But um, they're all you know, Pfizer proceeded a little bit more cautiously, and it's with their technology and and that approach has paid off for them. But you know, the major markets will, will lead. You know, whether that's obviously that's not equitable globally, but um, I'm afraid I don't, I don't see that changing. Yeah, I'd agree. I think the the only silver lining is hopefully we'll get more domestic production of these vaccines. There are various deals for different vaccines with you know local manufacturers and emerging markets will hopefully help somewhat uh, alleviate that inequity of the allocation. But it's probably going to be the case that the as usual the more developed markets get first dibs. Yes, my my last question before we conclude the COVID segment of the talk. Um, it's probably to do with uh, regulate, uh, regulatory approvals. Um, so I'm just wondering whether regulatory approvals will kind of change now that we've got past this initial um, part of the pandemic. Yes. Do you mean in terms of clinical trial requirements and what's going to be expected? Um, yeah, uh, in terms of what's going to be expected, how quickly the FDA or the EMA will be approving, because at the moment they've been approving things at warp speed. Uh, whether it's going to kind of slow down a little bit more. Yeah, I can, I can maybe touch on the clinical trial reta- requirements. So ultimately, I think the idea is once the correlates of uh, protection are established, i.e. being able to identify very clearly what immune response uh, translates into protection, which I personally think is pretty clear. As I say, it's the serum neutralizing antibodies at a minimum are very important. Once that's established, we'll be shifting to immunogenicity studies. And we've already seen that in the UK, Valneva, which is a small uh, small kind of vaccine biotech producer, uh, we have a deal with them where they'll produce some of their vaccines. I think it's about 60 million doses they're meant to be producing this year of their inactivated vaccine in the UK. They've actually been allowed in the UK to conduct a head-to-head immunogenicity study with AstraZeneca's vaccine for approval. So they won't actually need efficacy data, uh, assuming they show at least non-inferior immunogenicity. So that's starting it off. Um, I was actually somewhat surprised by the, uh, uh, Andrew mentioned Sanofi GSK starting their phase three vaccine study that they were looking at an efficacy study uh, rather than immunogenicity. I was expecting maybe the second people towards the second half of this year to be able to do immunogenicity, but maybe they're on the tail end of that, I think. Going yeah, I think, I think, Michael, what that is, you know, it's it seems really between the lines quite clear that the FDA basically said, you know, I know Sanofi months back had said, oh, yes, we'll do that. We'll do a head to head because that's the only option. And, you know, again, you're looking at the likelihood of recruiting people to the trial. But it it sounds like the FDA basically said, no, we want a straight classic efficacy trial. And, and so that's what they're going to have to shoot for. But again, as I say, 
they're going to have trouble recruiting people to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's clearly and the correlates of protection, as you just said, they're not there yet. So they thought, well, we want we want the you know the gold standard, please. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Um, that concludes um, this week's podcast for COVID-19. Please don't forget to have a look at the Q2 updates for the COVID-19 prevention disease analysis reports, uh, as well as having um, a look at the script articles for those of you who subscribe um, that Andrew's published. Okay, so now we'll be moving on to our second topic, uh, which is hemophilia, which I'll be covering. Um, so for listeners who are less familiar with haemophilia AMB, haemophilia is a rare blood disorder in which the blood doesn't clot properly. Uh, it's caused by mutations in factor 8 for haemophilia A and factor 9 for haemophilia B. Uh, so the current standard of care in haemophilia involves the use of um, either traditional recombinant factors uh, for 8 and 9, standard half-life products or hemolibra for haemophilia A patients. So typically these are dosed um, between twice a week, weekly, fortnightly. Um, but of interest for this podcast is the development of gene therapies for both haemophilia A and B. And these gene therapies basically offer uh, a one-off treatment lasting five to ten years. So they're a major game changer and a big, big step up from what we currently have. There's several manufacturers who are in a tight race for the approval of their gene therapies. Uh, so this includes major manufacturers like Pfizer, as well as small companies like Unicure and Spark. So there's quite a few things hotting up in the gene therapy space. Um, and for a more extensive background, please have a look at Data Monitor's Haemophilia Disease Analysis Report. This quarter in haemophilia, there were two major events focused on gene therapies. Firstly, the FDA lifted the clinical hold on Unicure's AMT061 in haemophilia B. And secondly, Biomarin announced five and four year data for its haemophilia gene therapy for Octavian. If I start with AMT061, so Unicure's gene therapy for haemophilia B, uh, I guess it's probably best if we rewind to the beginning uh, to put everything into context. Um, so in mid-December, a 75-year-old patient uh, who had a 25-year history of hep C, hep B, uh, and suspected non-alcoholic fatty acid, fatty liver disease, um, who smoked was diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, so this is after liver lesion was detected in a routine abdominal ultrasound. Uh, so on the 21st of December, Unicor basically announced uh, that the FDA had placed clinical hold on the phase three HOPE-B trial. Um, and this came just shortly after them reporting really great results, including uh, fixed activity of 37% in their 26-week interim data. Um, so Unicor has basically been conducting uh, analysis of the liver tissue of this patient, um, and they've basically found um, that only 0.027% of cells uh, actually have this mutation. And from their PCR uh, that they performed on the tissue of the integration sites, um, there were basically very few integration sites that were flagged up that were supposed to be driving uh, the tumour development. So this is quite important 
um, because a lot of these gene therapies are using the same type of technology uh, and the fact that Unicure's uh, AMT061 still seems safe uh, is quite a big thing for the rest of gene therapies in space. Second piece of news for Haemophilia A in this case was for Octavian. So about a week and a half ago on May 19th, Biomarin announced five-year data for Roctavian. Uh, so Roctavian was previously tutored to be the first gene therapy in the Haemophilia space. Uh, so basically before anything else. But I guess it's what about uh, a year ago, last August, the FDA basically sent them a CRL um, and they basically felt that they didn't have enough data uh, because their previous data on phase one, two was based on a product that was not actually the manufactured product. Um, so currently, their you know their BOO filing, which is coming up um, in 2022, is going to focus on the phase three data uh, that they get from uh, their trial. But in terms of the five-year data, it is quite promising. So although it's not really going to directly go for help for approval. Uh, it is going to help in terms of getting payers and physicians on board. Uh, so it was good news for Biomarin. Um, so after five years, they continue to show safety and efficacy with their treatment. So bleed rates are below one. Bleed rate is the main endpoint that we use in, gene for, uh, in hemophilia to compare the products. Um, so typically, hemophilia products tend to have annual bleed rates of 1, 1. 1.5 or below. Uh, so a bleed rate of cumulative bleed rate of 0.8 after five years is very, very good for Octavian. Um, there was no additional safety um, safety concerns uh, and it seems quite durable. Importantly, they had basically forecasted about an eight year um, durability um, based on what they had in kind of year two free data. Uh, it does seem like the companies, you know, are holding up to the expectations. Um, currently the CAO mentioned that it could be about seven to 10 years that they think the therapy is going to last. Uh, so this is all very positive for them. Perfect, thanks for that, Dave. Um, you mentioned Unicure at the beginning that it had been put on hold for the HCC, but it seems like, you know, the data don't necessarily support it being the cause in this case. How do you think that would impact the physician's opinion on it and its upcoming launch? Do you think do you think they'll feel safe given the number of patients in this study? Yeah, this is a this is quite a shaky one. It it, it I mean obviously having gone through the process, it seems very, very unlikely. I guess there's a tiny chance that it could still be. Uh, but the FDA feel confident that it's not that's obviously why they've lifted their clinical hold. It doesn't really help in terms of the image of gene therapies. This is kind of one of the major um, concerns, I guess, you really have. Uh, and I think it's recently one of the marketed gene therapies was put on hold. I think it could be Sargensma, or it's either that one or Zintegro um, for a similar kind of thing. And it was related to the, the therapy causing um, tumours. So that one is still in the investigation. Last time I checked, all in all, you know, um, getting kind of safety news is probably it's good news, but it doesn't help the image of gene therapies overall. So I guess if we think coming up to their approval, what 
what will their approval be based on? Will they have additional data by that point, maybe from a larger study that might hopefully allay any of those fears? So for the approval of Unicor's MT061, that's been going to be based on 52-week phase three data, as well as data. So in terms of long-term data, they're going to be hoping to use data from the phase two trial. For me, I actually kind of see an issue here, um, which I don't know if Unicor necessarily picked up on themselves. Um, but in fairness, the FTA in their guidance documents, they basically require, uh, I think it's one year data in a phase three trial. Um, so actually they kind of meet that requirement. Uh, but in terms of long-term data, the kind of phase two data they have, um, it's actually from a slightly different product, uh, which again was a problem that Roctavian had. Uh, and the difference they have in their product is that actually the gene therapy is based on wild type fix, whereas what they're using with AMT061 is the Pagio variant. So this Pagio variant has higher activity. Um, so that's kind of one of the kind of things I'll, I'll put into question when it comes to regulatory filing. Okay, and then on, in terms of regulatory filing, what are the, the timelines for the, some of these therapies? Who are you expecting to reach the market first in haemophilia A and then haemophilia B? Yeah, so I guess disappointingly for Biomarin, um, since it was actually really, really was a shock um, that they received the B a CRL. Um, but I guess the, what we expect at the moment in terms of haemophilia B, that it's going to be Unicure, which will be the first. Um, so Unicor are basically expected um, to come to market, well, to gain approval in 2022. Uh, then after Unicor, um, fairly soon after will be Pfizer uh, with their gene therapy for haemophilia B. Um, in terms of haemophilia A, again, it's very, very close now uh, to the kind of dismay of Octavian. Um, so Biomarin will be first, well, should be first to market with Roctavian uh, and they'll be releasing right at the beginning of 2023. Um, but they again, they're followed really shortly after by Pfizer, who have a haemophilia gene therapy as well for FAA. Additionally, Roche also has a gene therapy for haemophilia A, but they're expected to launch about a year later. Okay, so it sounds like there'll be quite a few potentially on the market. How do you, how do you see them slotting in? Do you think this is going to be widespread use, giving it's a rare disease, or do you think they'll be more limited to you know, particular patient subtypes? Yeah, so that's that's the thing. I guess in a way nobody really knows. So this is all based on you know, discussions with KLs. Um, I've done a couple of discussions with KLs in the US and the EU, and um, actually I was quite surprised. They had quite a positive outlook on this. Um, so, you know, our KO and EU discussions indicate that, you know, they, they expect about 15, 20 percent of patients to be on gene therapy, uh, gene therapy. So that's actually quite quite a lot more than I actually thought initially. Um, but I guess it kind of just emphasizes how game changing this is. You know, patients currently at the moment, um, they're on these replacement factors. There's peaks and troughs in them. That's a major problem for that as well. Uh, but also the dosing, 
they would have to be diagnosed twice a week. Um, okay, I guess with Hemlibra, it's more like bi-weekly. So Hemlibra has been a major breakthrough. But still, when you compare bi-weekly to once every 10 years, it, there's a massive leap. Yeah, definitely. So one could argue then, I mean, as you say, there's such a massive advance if, if, they, if they work and they're safe. What do you think will be stopping them being used across the broader haemophilia patient? Like, how do you think payers are going to react to these? Because I imagine that they're pretty expensive, right? If they're if they're replacing replacement factors over a prolonged period of time. Yeah, there's going to be like a number of challenges. Um, I guess it's not even just payers. You know, it's it's at a number of different levels. So I guess at the patient level, you know, there's going to be a number of patients who are going to be hesitant. You know, especially if you're on on the, so if you're more mild in terms of your symptoms, you're on on-demand therapy. Um, you know, it's it's much less of an impact for you, right? So then having to do gene therapy, you know, which has you know certain dangers, you're probably going to be reluctant to doing that. So I think in terms of patients, it will probably just be the severe patients who will be more interested. And then again, in terms of physicians, there's going to be a lot of physicians who are hesitant. You know, he will want to kind of see a few patients to go through and want to see longer term data. You know, they, they might want to see kind of towards 10 year data rather than five year data, which is what, you know, actually five year data is, is the best that we have so far. And that's from Biomarin. Um, with some of these other gene therapies, we're, we're only limited to about three, four years data. Pfizer, I think, has uh, four year data for its haemophilia B therapy. Uh, and I think about three years later for its hemophilia A therapy, but I'm not quite certain there. Um, and then I guess in terms of payers, probably the biggest issue for payers is the investment. So in terms of pricing, um, the only company that's kind of discussed pricing properly so far is Biomarin. Uh, so Biomarin has suggested a price type of about two to three million, and this would be a single payment paid up front. Uh, so obviously for healthcare systems, you know, that's a major cost um, and that's quite a big hurdle for companies to overcome. Yeah, definitely. If you have an insurer, I mean, particularly in the commercial segment where people can move between plans as well, that that would be an interesting uh, dynamic because you might have an insurer who maybe coughs up two and a half, three million dollars for a patient and then they switch insurers a couple of years down the line. So that, you know, the insurer that was paying for it in the first place doesn't necessarily get the benefit. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Do you think do you think it would just be an upfront payment? Do you think they'll do like pay for success or pay over a prolonged period of time? What do you think is going to be the most viable option? Yeah, that's a good question. So so I actually thought initially that it would be, you know, a pay over time kind of model, you know, where they'd basically be doing installments and so on. Um, but actually, I kind of tuned into UBS's Global Healthcare Conference where Biomarin was was on it, and uh, their their CFO, so Chief Financial Officer, uh, he actually said that um, people were more interested in using a single payment model, uh, and he actually also talked about uh, Zorgensma, and uh, Zorgensma has been using this kind of special pricing you know, with instalments paying over time. And uh, apparently they've had very little uptake. Um, so it seems like it's actually going to be just a single payment. Um, on the talk, actually, they also talked about different pricing models. So 
a lot of these companies will be exploring alternative pricing models. Uh, most likely, they're going to be using a pay for performance model. So it'll kind of be outcome based. So it might be that there might be an initial price, um, let's say kind of half the amount. And then, you know, a, a healthcare system will only pay the full cost if the patient actually responds. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Interesting space. Yep, definitely. Uh, it's really easing up in the gene therapy market for haemophilia. Well, thanks for that, Michael. Um, so that's all for this week. Many thanks for everyone listening. Please don't forget to have a look at Q2 updates for both the COVID-19 prevention and haemophilia disease analysis reports and the forecasts, uh, as well as looking at more, much more of the digital content across our website. Uh, additionally, for those subscribing to Script, uh, also have a look at Andrew's articles via the Script website. Please stay tuned for the June edition of the Farm Intelligence podcast. And bye for now.